practicing emotional health, doing it is very difficult. It's very challenging to sit with certain feelings. It's very challenging to have a conversation about how you feel when you're not confident, you're not sure you have the right words. You can take someone who's very resilient in one domain, take the, the war hero and put them in a conversation with their partner about something they're emotional about. They won't look that resilient. They'll look very jittery, very nervous, very emotional, maybe tear up. And so it's actually quite difficult. And that's part of why we don't have the conversation in part because we poo-poo it, because we're, you know, we think this is like ah, unimportant, just like, you know, buck up and, you know, pull yourself up and just get yourself out of it. And like, you know, mind over matter on the one hand. On the other hand, to actually do it is quite difficult. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. Guy, I could not be more excited to have you here with us today. Your content has been viewed, not even content, your wisdom, 30 million times online. And I have a feeling that's actually being a little bit, that's undercounting you. I guess the biggest question is, why do you do this? And then we'll jump into what exactly it is that you do. All right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Why I do this is because generally there's a massive ignorance about psychology, about emotional health, about mental health. There's so much we professionals know that we wish people all around knew, but there are very few mechanisms to deliver that content and to give the knowledge to people. So my mission is to try and get out there as much knowledge as possible so people can become more sophisticated, more educated, more knowledgeable about their emotional and psychological health. And what was the thing that made you say, because I know you and your twin brother are both psychologists. What does that make you say, this is the way I want to dedicate my life? I don't remember why, but I remember that it was very early. It was probably mm -hmm. around high school that I thought, wow, psychology is interesting. I thought people were interesting. You know, you, you really observe people, you can see all the contradictions, all the repeated mistakes, all the different things people do that they don't notice. And when you observe that, you go, huh, what, what's that about? And how is that happening? And so I was just very curious about the human mind. I think that's where it started, my brother as well. Um, and then when it came to college, we each kind of chose a path. Uh, because we're twins, we, by the way, decided to not discuss it with one another because we didn't want to influence one another. Oh, wow. So we literally didn't discuss anything about what we're going to study until we actually uh, applied. And then we compared and lo and behold, same no, thing. no, well, this is, this is a true story. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And, and I kind of want to jump into this, right? You talk about emotional health. Some people think emotional health is mental health. And the reality is they're actually two very distinct things. Can you help us understand the difference? Yeah, it's a distinction that I especially um, think about. I'm not sure that a lot of people think about that distinction. But for me, mental health is about diagnosable conditions, right? Because that's what you have the manual for mental health disorders. They are diagnosable conditions. When your depression has come to the point where it's now diagnosable, mm -hmm. when the anxiety is so profound and so continuous that it's now diagnosable. Except that until and before it gets diagnosable, many people deal with low mood and depressed mood Everyone has anxiety at times, but that's not necessarily diagnosable. Loneliness, 
can be devastating. It's not a diagnosis. And so their guilt can be really disruptive, not a diagnosis. And so there are many aspects of our emotional life that go up until the demarcation of a mental disorder that are incredibly impactful, incredibly important. It's also the entire land in which preventative measures exist because the whole point of preventative measures is to apply them before um, something gets too bad. And so all that realm of how we need to generally daily think about our emotional health is in the emotional health realm. It's not mental health until something really goes beyond a certain line and then we actually have something to to you know to be diagnosed with so if we're being honest right emotional health is arguably actually more important than mental health because it is the prior state from which you progress and have some kind of diagnosable disorder if it's if, if anything yes and it's also the thing that applies to everyone we everyone. all experience those issues and different you know challenges in life that can impact emotional health and that's where we need to intervene and think about things so yes it's, that's about everyone. Mental health is about the few, not that few, mind you, but because it could be very many and most of us in our lifetimes, but once things, certain things get too bad. And it's, I guess the biggest question is, because it's so damn important, I mean, arguably, it is probably one of the single most important things to make sure you have a mastery over because it dictates how you live your everyday life. Why the heck don't enough people talk about it? People are reluctant to talk about their feelings. This is true, especially of men a lot of the yeah. time. The idea is that we have a very um, incorrect notion of what emotional strength is. We tend to associate emotional strength with the absence of emotions instead of with the mastery of emotions. The absence of emotions is robotic. It's, you know, it's not necessarily healthy. It's very healthy, by the way, if you're in certain circumstances that are very difficult when you're in a war zone, for example, not a time to ask yourself, how am I feeling about these bombs? Not relevant. <laughs> but when you're not, when you're not in that kind of challenge, um, how you feel about things is very, very important. It's not something we teach people to understand, to think about. And so we associate that because we see all the action heroes never having any feelings. We associate strength with emotion and we associate emotion with weakness. This is fundamentally incorrect psychologically in psychology, emotional rigidity, the lack of expression is problematic, in fact. It's so interesting. I actually couldn't agree more with that. It's, I'm in a relationship, I've been with my fiance now for eight years. I notice that when I keep things bottled up inside of me that are very normal, hey, I should just talk about this because you know what, it created a little bit of friction in my life they tend to kind of stack on top of each other. When they stack on top of each other, I might tend to get a little bit prickly when the reality is it's just a function of seven or eight conversations that could have quickly been had, but I don't want to because I'm too man. It's not just conversations. Sometimes it's just a, a comment is sufficient. Yeah. Like, here's an example. Um, I always say, you know, relationships get, the, the patterns get started very, very quickly. And so when you're just starting to date someone, pay a lot of attention because you're actually negotiating a contract hmm. unbeknownst to both of you, because you're setting expectations that will then be um, almost set in stone later on. So if small things are bothering you, you don't need to make a big deal out of them, just note them. So for example, one person is 15 minutes late to a date, you don't have to say, hey, you were late, that's not okay. You don't have to give a lecture. All you need to say is something like, was the subway backed up? Was there traffic on the freeway? In other words, all that is doing is noting that 
just I noted you were late, so not necessarily cool, but not making a big deal about it. So sometimes in relationships, you don't need to have a big let's talk mm-hmm. about the fact that you didn't clear the dishwasher. God, that seems like a bit life. much. That's you can just my... be like, are you going to get to the dishwasher? Both of them, both of them give me a little bit of PTSD. I, maybe because I'm really bad. At doing the dishes. PTSD is something many people have. I would, I've got to imagine it's such a simple thing to do, but for whatever reason, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing, and it causes real problems in relationships. And I, I guess you know the other thing that's really important here is you've dedicated your life to really what I'll call the softer side of health, right? I think we talk a lot about let's go lift a bunch of weights, let's make sure that we're eating the right thing, and the reality is that psychological health is as important, if not even more important than your physical health. Why do you think it took us so long as a society to finally say, yep, you're right? Because at the moment, it's kind of having its, I would say, it is the on the forefront of all the conversations we're having. And so I'm going to push back yep. on something you said. Don't think it's soft at all. Because in fact, practicing emotional health, doing it is very difficult. It's very challenging mm-hmm. to sit with certain feelings. It's very challenging to have a conversation about how you feel when you're not confident, you're not sure you have the right words. You can take someone who's very resilient in one domain, take the the war hero and put them in a conversation with their partner about something they're emotional about. They won't look that resilient. They'll look very jittery, very nervous, very <laughs> emotional, maybe tear up. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually quite difficult. And that's part of why we don't have the conversation. In part because we poo-poo it, because we're, you know, we think this is like ah, unimportant, just like, you know, buck up and, you know, pull yourself up and just get yourself out of it. And like, you know, mind over matter on the one hand. On the other hand, to actually do it is quite difficult. It's it's so interesting you say that, right? Because when I go to the gym every morning and when I want to set a personal record, I just literally say to myself, I'm going to do it and I push harder. But when I have to have a difficult conversation, oh my God the amount of feelings that I go through. And it's not one, it's three or four, and it's multifaceted. And I, I will say this, that someone I met did tell me, and I've heard it multiple times over, uh, a success of a person can be measured by the number of difficult conversations you're willing to have. And I generally try putting myself there on a professional level all the time. But for whatever reason, when it's on a personal level, it's just a whole nother level of difficult. Because it's a whole other set of muscles. And you need to work out those muscles. Like the others, if you work on them, they will grow. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, you'll always shy away from that exercise. So you're basically saying, if we're not naturally emotional or good with describing how we're feeling, if we exercise it just like we do with a regular muscle, we can actually get better? Absolutely, but most people are not good with it. It's not something that comes naturally. Because look, you, you, might, you had to learn how to work out. Every exercise you do has a very specific correct posture and, and, and function and a whole lot of options for incorrect, which you can injure yourself and which you can do damage and which you're certainly not going to grow any muscles or strengthen anything. So you actually had to learn technique. You had to learn form. You had to learn discipline. You learned all this stuff. You didn't enter the gym one day and know how to do things. You spent a lot of hours learning, practicing, correcting, self-correcting, asking, tweaking. You spent a lot of effort on it. What effort do we spend on trying to understand how to articulate our feelings? 
very, very little. What aids do we have? Who's telling us how to distinguish in our bodies what this feeling is versus that? Very little. Who even tells us that when you feel something, it's not a feeling. When I ask people, what are they feeling? I get a one answer as if it's one color and they're always primary colors. It's always sad, happy, angry, etc. It's much more nuanced. It's not a strand, it's a tapestry. No one's telling you to look for those threads. It's so the, as you describe it, it's right. It, you couldn't be more right, right? Let's just say I've worked out an hour and a half a day for six days a week for the past 25 years of my life. And if I were to even say, have I put in 10 hours of deliberate practice and learning how to be connect with my emotions more? The answer is probably no. And your comment about, and I love the way you describe it, it is a tapestry because it is so complex, it's multifaceted, it's layered. And I guess that's what makes it so damn difficult though, right? Because there's no, and very often it's like, you can't go to school to learn this stuff. And your parents very often, they have their own bag and they're dealing with their own things. Well, so no that, one taught them either. No one taught them either, right? And it's, and so the question is like, where the hell do you go to learn this stuff then? No, so back to the question about why I do what I do. That's what you do what you do. Yeah, and because somebody, you know, I'm, I'm not the only voice, obviously, but it's really important to learn. And part of the message that I give people is like, it's not something you're going to pick up in a weekend. Mm -hmm. This is a life practice. Again, think about how many hours you work on your physical health and think how many hours you work on your emotional or mental health. So you meditate, great. For most people, when I ask, what do you do for your emotional health? Meditate yoga, and then really awkward silence. Hmm. Uh, if I wanted to become better emotionally, how would I go about that process of thinking, how do I need to get better at this stuff? You can't divine what's the best way to bench press if you don't know how to do it, what to do, how your back should be, where your legs should be, you know, where you should position things. Someone needs to tell, oh, you can do trial and error, which is fine. Um, you can hurt yourself on the way. But in terms of these messages, there are very few reservoirs of knowledge. I just want to give you an example of a very, it's going to sound silly, stupid, and perhaps even infantilizing, and it's not. Mm -hmm. um, but what I recommend to many, many people and my patients and you know, companies I work with is the emotion wheel. There, is, there are many forms online of just a wheel of emotions, which give you like 100 to 200 names of feelings grouped by the, you know, so there's anger, resentment, frustration, there might be in one group and, you know, other emotions and the other, you know, gratitude, acceptance, etc. And um, when I say to people, how are you feeling? They'll give me the monosyllabic, you know, kind of answer. Mm -hmm. But then I say, look at the wheel. Hmm. Don't look at what you're feeling at a 10. Give me 10 feelings you're having and rank them from one to 10. This might be an eight, that might be a two. And find at least one that's contradictory because you might be really angry, really frustrated, really hurt, but maybe also a little bit relieved because part of you was thinking maybe da, 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 da. that's the nuance, that's the complexity. So people say like an emotion wheel, well, not five. And I'm like, we all are five when it comes to this because no one taught it to us. Now I'll say something about the emotion wheel. I use it as well because, you know, I'm not going to think of everything, you know, just, but when I see the name of the feeling, I'm like, oh yes, that, mm -hmm. oh yes, that. Do you know what I mean? And so, and so it's useful because that's our tool to learn the language and to reflect 
a bit internally about, well, indeed, which of these? When you see the name of the feeling, you can ask yourself, do I have that? You're not going to think of it necessarily. So it's a great tool to learn that language. And over time, you'll learn it sufficiently so you don't really need to reference the wheel that much. Well, the, the thing you also said, which, act, which was very much complimentary, you said awareness. And the first step that I took was I needed to be aware of how I wanted to improve. And it's the equivalent, which is you need to be aware of what emotions you're having. And then once you're aware, at the very least, you say, okay, now I know where I am as an individual. What's the next step after awareness? Well, certainly, I mean, the whole point of the understanding your emotions, and by the way, when I say understanding them, it's not just identifying the word, but ideally where you feel that in your body, because we're all a little bit different. People mm -hmm. that say hold stress in different places in their body. For some people, it's the GI system. For some, it's the neck. For some, it's the chest. For some, we all kind of, you know, so different aspects of things. So getting to know our physiological aspect of the emotion is also is also quite um, you know, important. But there's a lot of information hmm. in these feelings. For example, just to use the example you gave, it could be that the magnitude of the relief you felt indicated that was probably too much of a stretch. Yep, that's 100%. You learn that from the extent of how relieved you feel when you got the no, which might not have been as clear. Before it was like, oh, this might be, and after you got the no, it was like, it probably would have been. So, and just as an example, but there's a lot of information we can extract when we're feeling envious of something. Mm. It's telling us something that we feel we need more of that we don't have. We don't just envy for nothing. Yep. We envy because we want something because we feel we don't have enough of it. Now, you have to like sometimes break that down because, oh, I envy, you know, the, the billionaire with da 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 da, -da. What about it? Mm -hmm. What about that do you you know, mostly think about that, oh, if I had that, you would, and do you, why don't you have that enough in your life right now? And do you need more of it? And so it's all really useful information. And it's interesting because when you break that down, you might realize I don't envy the billionaire because he's got a bunch of nice houses and a bunch of nice cars, but the reality is because they have freedom. And then you say to yourself, well, why don't I have freedom? Is it because I'm overextending myself financially? And if I literally just change the way I live, I would have as much freedom as I possibly wanted. And then you can shift your perspective or change your lifestyle. Right. I completely agree there. All right. And so I have identified it. I've said, okay, I need to think about what's driving that feeling. But then is really the only way to get better at this is to work with a professional like you? Or are there other things that I can do to kind of set myself on the right path? Look, a lot of my stuff, you know, the, TED, the three TED Talks, there are interviews, there are a lot of articles, I've written hundreds, thousands of articles. There's a lot of free information online. Mm -hmm. The reality about therapy is that a slim, slim proportion of people can afford it financially, mm -hmm. have access, it, access to it geographically, and have space for it in their day. It is, it's a, it's, that's a benefit very few people can benefit from the one-on-one. -on -one. Now, there are many companies and, and apps, you know, these days that are trying to fill some of those gaps. But therapy is not the only answer. It, it can be, if you can afford it, if it's, you know, available to you, and if you find the right person, because you need to, yep. the match there is very important, terrific. But if not, this is work you can do yourself. And by the way, when you're in therapy an hour a week, that's not gonna do it. If you think, I'm gonna work on myself an hour a week, it's like, go to the gym an hour a week. Let's <laughs> see how that does for you. Nothing, yep. it will do nothing. So it's all about getting direction to then continue working on yourself outside of that. So that's 
the gambit anyway. So you can be doing that at any point. And really, when I say any point, throughout your life. Generally, when I talk to my therapist or my executive coach, it's an hour and then I'm on the rest of my life and then I see him next week. There is so much work that needs to go on in that time between your conversations. And that can be very difficult. Are there any tools out there you've seen to really help push people into, quote unquote, doing the work? So the interesting thing, for example, my, my first TED talk, uh, Why We Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, when that came out, I started getting a ton of messages, and I still do, from mostly from men, just characterizing mm -hmm. who the message was from. I'm not saying just men, but the messages were mostly, mostly from men. Um, and in general, this was the basic message. This was a generic form of the message. I saw your talk. It made me have a feeling. I'm not even sure what that was, but I thought I should reach out. In other words, people were like, oh, I felt something. Yep. And then because I felt something, oh, there's things are going on inside me. Oh my goodness, you know, like, what do I do with that? I'm not used to, and usually when they said they felt something, it made them emotional, it mm -hmm. made them sad, they teared up. And that's what they weren't expecting. Like, why did that, whoops, what is it? What's going on there? You know, a Seinfeld said, what's the salty substance coming down <laughs> from my eyes? Um, you know, so it, it's, that's what makes them suddenly realize, oh, I have feelings. I'm so used to dismissing them, pushing them down, ignoring them, uh, but I have them. And that's old, almost an opening of, and by the way, of course you do, we all do, but the idea is that if you're not on top of them, they will impact you mm. in ways that you're not aware of, and often in ways that are not great for you. So the goal here is not just to thrive in some way that might be superfluous. The goal here is to really prevent yourself from thinking incorrectly, from doing things and thinking in ways that will actually damage you, not just emotionally, but very, very concretely, functionally in your life. What do you mean by that? Like, how does, how does, how does my emotion damage me concretely, functionally? Here's an example, mm -hmm. a study. Um, I think this is probably college students because most psychology studies are done mm -hmm. on psychology students um, at university because they're the ones that have to sign up for experiments. But it was about students, it was students. But those students were put into two groups. Um, they were given an IQ test before, then um, they had to write something, and then they were given a second form of the IQ test with different questions. And what they had to write, each group had to think differently. One group had to think of a future, mm -hmm. just think of what their future would be like. The other, they were told, you know, based on that test, which was an IQ test, it wasn't, um, you might end up alone in your life. Mm. So we want you to contemplate what that would be like. And that, that group lost on average 10 IQ points from that thought exercise. It was a thought exercise. And you saw a drop of roughly 10 IQ points. Now, that is functional. We also know, for example, when people experience failure, they become very risk averse in the aftermath of that failure. So for creatives, being chewed out about how bad your presentation was, now go and make it better, it's not the best gambit for the manager because you actually now made them so risk averse, they're going to be thinking inside the box rather than outside the box. I'm just giving you very simple examples, but it goes much deeper and much more intensely in other situations that are more specific. But yes, we are impacted all the time. I'll give you just one last example. Um, how we think about stress 
how we understand yep. what the sources of stress are is going to determine whether that is the kind of stress that is healthy or the kind of stress that is unhealthy and that will really saddle us. And the only difference is our framing of it. And our framing happens automatically, except we can change it. So again, there are so many ways in which we are going to be thoroughly impacted um, that again, people are not aware of, but once they get more educated, they start to realize, oh, these things are highly linked. In the morning when I wake up and I make sure that I'm doing my gratitude practice, right? And I very distinctly do it in an app called Five Minute Journal where you think about something, you envision it, you feel it, you visualize it in your mind's eye, you think about how grateful you are for it and think about how great you want your day to be. It automatically, it's like it puts a mold on your thoughts. So when you go throughout the rest of your day, you're generally in a better mood. And you can almost, what I'll call like architect, a little bit of, I would say, upside into your life pretty regularly if you decide to, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Be very intentional about the fact that positive thoughts lead to positive outcomes. So what you just said is something that a lot of people listening to this will be skeptical about. Mm -hmm. They'll say, really? Five minutes of journaling is gonna change the nature of my day. And yet there is abundant research yes. that shows exactly that. That five minutes of journaling about gratitude, especially if it's in some narrative form, it's not just, you know, when I say this to patients, they're like, oh, well, I'm grateful for the sun. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> what you're grateful for is that you feel better on light days versus darker days, the warmth of the sun. And like, in other words, you've got to tell the story about mm -hmm. what that is. But when people do that, it has a marked impact positively on their mood, on their outcome, on their resilience, on their optimism, on their framing of the day, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, something so small can have a big impact, but just people don't realize it. But even though in this case, so much science that, that shows it, it's a great example. You had a, a fact, which was that loneliness has a similar impact on people's long-term health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that's, that's a big statement. What does that mean? And why is loneliness so damn dangerous for you? I want to emphasize one word you said in case people missed it. It's the same impact on your health. Okay. Not mental health. I mean, mental health. Physical health. Too, but your physical health and longevity. Hmm. You will, it will kill you. You will die sooner if you're lonely. Human connection, because we are social animals and we evolved in tribes and, and small groups in which we knew everyone, we were connected, we felt a part of being, feeling that connection. And today in the modern world, we have many tribes, you know, very few people have one, you have your work tribe and you have your gym tribe and you have your home tribe and da, da, da. Um, being, feeling that feeling of connection, feeling seen, feeling belonging is so essential that in the absence of it, our bodies physiologically respond as if they're under assault. Mm. Respond, you know, it, you know, it compromises our, the function of our immune system that sets us up for all kinds of illnesses and diseases. In one study, college students who just started college were given a flu shot and students who had indicated they were lonely had poorer reaction to the flu shots, which happened just a few days after they arrived. So it wasn't long-term loneliness here. And by the way, the finding about the 15 cigarettes is for chronic loneliness, not for, you know, episodic, but when it's chronic and for a lot of people, it certainly is 
chronic. So that is a, is a huge, huge deal. It will actually impair your health, it'll impair your longevity, and it'll impair your quality of life in every possible way. If you don't have human connection, if you don't have someone to look forward to, it doesn't keep you alive, nor do you have the desire to want to stay alive. And also, I would have got to imagine, you don't have positive emotions, and positive emotions really are kind of like the lifeblood of why we even stay alive. That's true. I, I want to be clear about, about one thing. What loneliness refers to mm-hmm. is solely a subjective feeling oh. of connection. It actually, it's not about quantity, it's about quality, and it's about subjective quality. Mm-hmm. There are people, maybe more introverted people, who might have one or two um, really close friends. They, they have their, their, their partner, perhaps, or they have a couple of really close friends, and they feel highly connected because they are very strongly connected to those people. And you can have people who seem surrounded by friends or acquaintances or colleagues all the time, and yet they're lonely because they don't really feel seen by them. They don't really feel connected. They're there in body, but not in spirit. No one's actually asking them about them. They're not connecting in that substantial way. So it's very difficult to look at someone and assess whether they're lonely or not. That's something only you um, can tell. And it's also very contextual. So it's very comparative. It's, it's, what, it's based on what your expectation is in a way. So when you live, so New York City, we're right now in New York City, it's a very difficult place to be alone because you're surrounded by people, it emphasizes the aloneness. If you move to some kind of very rural area and you only have one acquaintance to start, it might not seem so bad because just there's very few people around, you're already getting to know them a little bit here and there. So it's, that's why it's subjective. It's not just how we feel, but it's also how we think about things um, and, and, and how we understand what our situation is. But that's the one where we really have to look inward and go, do I feel disconnected? Because a lot of people are lonely and they don't ascribe it to loneliness. They're just, I'm in a bad mood or I'm irritable. But when I ask them, who's the closest person in your life? And they say, oh, my, 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 my college friend. I'm like, oh, great. And how often do you talk to them? Oh, at least every other week. And like, who else shares your day? Who else knows what's going on with you on the day to day? No one. And I said, do you feel lonely? And when I ask it, the distress on their face, Hmm. when it suddenly connects it, oh, it's that, you know, is profound. You know, it's interesting. I'm very fortunate in the sense that I've created a life that is exactly what I dreamt of, meaning I run a company that's helping people change their lives. I get to work with my closest friends. My two best friends work at the company. My brother works with us. Uh, My fiance is an entrepreneur. She works out of the house. My mom lives next to her. Like everything is as perfectly planned as I could want it. And there are moments where I felt lonely but I've now realized there are moments I felt lonely and it's because I didn't necessarily have someone I could share the feelings of what it's like being a CEO with, right? And it was after I built a peer group of other individuals that were going through the same kind of problems that we could share things that I generally had to keep really deeply bottled up inside that I noticed that the quality of my life, which is already wonderful, improved even another notch. And I guess, I really buy into the fact that you said it's not quantity. It really is the quality of deep relationships that you have. And I that also makes a ton of sense why I would say people that are in 
I would say, surrounded by other individuals very often say, hey, I feel like I'm disconnected at times. 10 years ago, literally 10 years ago, I wrote an article for Psychology Today about the loneliness of the CEO. Because the CEO often has to hold knowledge, let's say about companies in a precarious situation, that's not something you want to tell the employees right away. Um, the CEO is like, it's lonely at the top. It's mm -hmm. literally that. And, and a lot of CEOs um, feel that way. They feel isolated. They don't necessarily want to share um, what's going on. And it's very important for them to connect with a peer group of other CEOs. And I work with so many CEOs who've said to me like, I'm probably the only one who's feeling this. And I'm like, you don't know any CEOs then, do you? Um, because you know your company's apparently doing well right now, but it needs to get there. And, and you've had several companies, you know that there are a lot of iffy moments along the way. It's All a roller coaster of emotion. And so there's a point in which things start to tick along. There's, yeah, loneliness can in many different, you know, actors, I work with a lot of well-known actors and they can feel it too. They're like, you know, when people befriend me, are they befriending me because of who I am or because I'm well-known or successful people in the same way can, how do I tell who's interested in me mm -hmm. versus my wealth or my fame or, or whatever it is? It's difficult to tell. And then you can surround yourself with people and actually feel like, do these people really care? I don't know. If I lose it all tomorrow, will they be here? It, it can manifest in very unexpected people in unexpected ways, but that's why you have to take the temperature. Yeah. I'll tell you, I went through a very interesting emotional journey recently, which was, when you work with people, you develop an emotional attachment to them. You genuinely love these people. And it's more so than the work they do. It's what they bring to your life, And right? I'm surrounded by them. Yet at the same time, you're always assessing people because your job at the end of the day is to build an organization that continuously gets better and provides value to your shareholders and meets the goal or for us, it's to help people understand they should have confidence as they age and live in a world where age isn't a limit. And if there's someone that you love that's holding back that mission, you have to really think about hard, do they belong to be here? And the way I kind of, the shift I made was the same way I went into the way I give myself feedback with love, right? That 100 page binder and, and learning how to separate myself from the problem. I realized that when you do performance reviews, you've actually got to look at it as a place from not, I am pointing a finger at you in a black and white kind of way, but if I genuinely care for you and I want to see you get better, how do I give you feedback? I would give to myself in a tone that is actually honest because you have to be honest, but also leaves you a set of breadcrumbs or I would say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Directions for how to get better and basically saying, hey, listen, I got the support for you. Let me, let me help you get there. But I've realized that there are constantly, and you'll probably agree with this, moments in your life where you are becoming emotionally, more emotionally intelligent and at times where you have no clue how to be emotionally intelligent because you just fundamentally haven't had the experience yet. Mm. So two, two things I want to say about that. Number one, there is a lot of overlap mm -hmm. and overlap, there's not complete overlap between parenting and management hmm. of people, right? Because you have the same kind of dilemma. Here's your child, they did something wrong. You want to correct them. You don't want to diminish their yep. uh, motivation, their self-esteem, their confidence, but you do need to correct them and tell them something was wrong. How do you do that in a way that's most constructive, but also clear rather than, oh no, honey, that was great what you did. Mm. It wasn't so great. You know, so, so a lot of that thinking is, is similar. And a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll work with somebody who's a very direct um, and, and productive and caring um, manager because they are really giving 
very, you know, direct feedback. They're not whitewashing. They're not like ignoring. They're like, hey, this wasn't good enough, but let's talk about what you can do, et cetera, et cetera. And then when they go home, there's no limit set whatsoever or vice versa. People are really strict, you know, as parents and very good. And then they get to work and, da, da, da. and I'm like, it's the same skill set, essentially. Mm. It's the same discomfort because you care about the person. You want them to do well, but you don't want to diminish their spirit, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes we have a lot of skill sets that can transfer across domains, but we don't think to put on that hat because if we were thinking of that hat, a lot would be much clearer to us, literally by just changing the frame yes. of how we're thinking. We need to come up with our own user manual. The example being, if you need to get a pain reliever, you have a choice of eight, nine different pain relievers over the counter, however many. Um, for me, for example, for headaches, there's a specific brand that works best and yeah. the others don't work as best. I, that is trial and error. And so a lot of the things, a lot of the interventions, a lot of the techniques, a lot of the tools in the emotional health domain and, other, and outside of it, uh, physical health as well, are specific things we learned that are specific for us. When you train in the gym, there's a certain thing that works for you and certain techniques probably won't. Yeah. You've learned that. That's your user manual aspect, right? And so I like to think of it as a user manual because it's something we all need to develop. It will save us a lot of time and it'll save a lot of mistakes because we figure things out and then we don't note them, write them down, generalize them, extract the specific for us, and then we'll go and make the same mistake again. So that I'm calling it your, in part, your user manual. You talk about, you have this video that's been viewed 13 million times. You wrote a book on this concept of immerse, emotional first aid. And to a certain degree, my user manual was a component of emotional first aid I did in order to help me understand myself better. What is emotional first aid? And the, I think the other thing is, what are three things people can do to start practicing it immediately in their everyday life? So when I talk about emotional first aid, I refer to the fact that we sustain emotional injuries in life as frequently as we do physical um, ones and as adults more so because we have less um, scraped knees and, 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 you know, and things. Um, but we experience rejection, for example, on the regular. Mm -hmm. We experience failure regularly. We experience loneliness. We experience loss regularly in different, you know, amplitudes. Um, there, there are a lot of different things that, that create a wound in kind. Now, does every wound have to be addressed? No. Does every cut? have to be addressed? No, if it's small, it'll be fine. But if it's a little bit deep and you can tell, most of us can look at a cut on their arm and assess whether mm, I can leave that. It needs a bandage. It might need more than a bandage. Let's hail that cab right now. I need to get to the emergency room. You know, we can tell the difference between the depth of the cut and the kind of what we need to intervene. We don't have, most of us can't tell that. And so emotional first aid is about being able to assess your wounds, ask yourself what they are, and then treat them in that book. I, every chapter is a different wound, but it's divided into the what's the wound, what the wound does to you, mentally, emotionally, physically, and otherwise, and what are the treatments that you can apply. And I always give a variety of treatments because you're going to need to try them out and see what speaks to you, what works to you, what made you feel better. They're all science-based. They're all based on studies. But again, so are the over-the-counter medication. Some will work for you better than others. Yeah. So, so that's what emotional first aid is, being aware of when something nagged at you, injured you, you're not getting it out of your mind, you're not moving on that quickly, it's sitting there under the surface, and you actually need to treat it. When guys come to us for treatment, right, very often they say, what's the medicine I need to take? And what people have to realize is we tell them this, there is no silver bullet. You don't just take the medicine and it changes your life. 
you take the medicine, it gives you some momentum in your life and you have to take that momentum and harness and do something useful with it. And the way you react to a medication and the way your momentum looks is very different than someone else's. And so what you actually just talked about was you have to make sure what your specific set of interventions are that work best for you. And by the way, those things change over the course of your life. This is very similar to my user manual, very specific to me. How does someone go about figuring out what are those three or four things that really are the right things for them? There are three or four <laughs> per kind of injury. In other words, that there, makes there, sense. there's way more than three or four. But um, again, just get informed, get educated. If you're feeling something, a, identify what you're feeling. And if you can, something's really, let's just use rejection because it's, it's such a common thing. People feel rejection today when they're on dating apps and then you're swiping and this person didn't get back to you or that you feel rejected or you had a text with them and now they're not responding. It feels like a rejection. Certainly if you went on the date and they're not interested in, in having another one, it stings, it hurts. Yep. If you're on a dating app, that's going to happen to you a lot. Um, and if you're dating, that's going to happen a lot. Some of them you can be like, mm, it'll sting, I'll get over it. You don't need to do anything. You just accept the fact that this is going to sting for a few hours. It'll sully my mood for a bit, but then I'll get over it. Some of them really kind of stick with you sometimes. And the question is, A, why that person stuck with you? And you can do some thinking there. But then if it did stick with you, and you know it stuck with you because then people will say to me and, you'll th and they will think things like, I'm going to get off the dating apps for a little bit. Yep. Mm, yep. How come? Your goal is to meet someone. How does it help you? I.e., there's a wound there. You, you, you got rejected, disappointed, hurt in a way that is sticking, so now you're like, I'm gonna retreat from the thing that I want, um, that's a wound. And you can treat that wound. Just as an example, one of the best ways to treat that wound is that when we get rejected, we tend to focus almost exclusively on all our shortcomings in our effort to understand why that happened. Well, why, did, why weren't they interested? I might not be this enough, not this enough, not this enough, too much of this, too much of this, too much of this. If only I were that, why did I say this? What's wrong with me? I'm never gonna meet someone it becomes incredibly self-critical. Mm -hmm. It's a very natural thing. When, ironically, not so ironically, what you need to be doing in that moment is reviving your self-esteem, not pummeling it. But that's the instinct, right? You know, to, to become very self-critical. So there are exercises you can do to revive your self-esteem that will actually remind you what you bring to the table, not what you don't. Mm -hmm. And when you remind yourself what you bring to the table, you'll feel better you'll feel more hopeful, you'll feel more motivated, you'll realize, oh no, actually, I, there's a lot I have to offer, I just have to find the person to appreciate it. It will, it will soothe, right? Um, and, and so that's just a basic example of, don't just let it be, get informed, do the exercise, do the things that will actually make you feel better, and then you can soothe and heal that wound, and then get back on the dating app rather than you know, be away from it and then get more anxious before you go back because now you've avoided it. Avoidance supersizes super anxiety. There's a whole train of events that can happen. I, so I'm taking myself back 10 years ago when Tinder came out and I was in New York and I was single and or Match was around. And I feel like New York is this really interesting city where rejection is part of the journey you're on because you're going to match with someone, start a conversation. And I would guess for guys, 5% of the conversations you start actually turn into a real life situation. So there's a lot of rejection. And so guys just get, they really get used to it. One of the things I've heard you say though, is 
if you have low self-esteem and if you give yourself affirmations, maybe they're real or maybe they're not real, it could actually have the opposite effect. And where is the line with that? So this is regarding positive affirmations. There are a lot of positive affirmations. Positive affirmations are statements that you'll find on calendars and on uh, uh, refrigerator magnets. Mm -hmm. the, the, the I'm beautiful and worthy of love or I'm going to be a great success in life. Those very generic, general positive statements. And what the research shows is that any statement you, made about, um, you make about yourself has to fall within the domain of what your unconscious mind thinks is believable. Mm. And when you are feeling rejected and probably unattractive, even if you're very attractive, if you're feeling rejected, you're not feeling attractive enough, um, saying to yourself, I'm beautiful and I'm going to find great love when you're actually feeling I won't, is going to just remind you that you don't believe that and make you feel worse. So positive affirmations can make people with low self-esteem feel worse. And the people who they actually help are people with high self-esteem already who don't really need them, is the irony. Now, it's not that affirmations in general aren't good. The positive, generic ones that fall outside of the domain of what's believable to you are not good. Therefore, you need to adapt any affirmation, if it's on a refrigerator magnet or a manual or a book or whatever it is, to something that's believable to you. So instead of, I'm beautiful and I will find great love, is I have a lot to offer, and if I keep looking, I'll find the person who appreciates it. That That's is, believable. What do you think are some good exercises that people can start doing when they're getting rejected? So the exercise I suggested in terms of, um, you know, affirming what you bring to the table, the way that looks is you make a list of, make it exhaustive, but at least 10 things about you that you know are valuable in the dating relationship domain, mm -hmm. right? So even if it's about physical attraction, maybe you don't love the way you look, but you have great eyes right? Or a great butt mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and, um, and then you are emotionally available and you are kind and you are conscientious and you make great muffins and your back rubs are unparalleled, whatever it is. Do things that are, you know you have, you mm -hmm. know that are going to be appreciated. And then you write a five minute thing, a paragraph or two about one of them twice a day. You know, here's why this has been, you know, really valuable, and here's why somebody will really appreciate it. You are elaborating, like, this is something I have to offer. It's an important thing. People are going to appreciate it. And if you do that a couple of times a day, even in the moment of the rejection, um, it will feel better. I do want to say something about your method there, because mm -hmm. I want to, uh, it's, a, it's a method, and I want to, like, highlight what, what the method is and what you did, because you did something very, very important. Emotional resilience is something that we need to build. Um, and it's something that we build by getting through hardships from small to large. But in order, so for example, in, I have a newsletter. In my newsletter, I gave these examples when I spoke about resilience. I said, let's look at how we got through the pandemic. Two people had a, in New York, isolated for months, had a really traumatic, terrible time. Both of them get through the pandemic. One of them says to themselves, both of them say to themselves, that was awful. Mm -hmm. One of them says, I could never get through that again. And the other one says, here's how I got through it. By recognizing, because they both got through it. So even the one that says I could never get through it again, could, because they did, except they're not looking at what they did that helped them get through it. They're not going to build resilience. The one you need to not just get through something, but be clear about what you did 
that got you through it, what your skill sets were, what your coping mechanisms were, what the social support was, what the emotional intelligence was. Every time you got no's when you were trying to raise um, money, and every time you had success, you were saying, aha, I can do this. You like, I just keep trying. I mean, you were being very in, intentional or not, but you were very intentionally saying to yourself, this is how I get through it. I keep trying, I don't give up. You're very clear. And so when somebody says you can't do this, you already, it's not just that you say, yes, I can. But if I asked you in that moment, give me five reasons you think you can, you could, because you've thought about them. That's how resilience gets built. You actually have to be thoughtful about successes as much as about failures. And you have to be thoughtful about failures because you have to know what helps you get through them. That's what builds resilience. When you're in touch more with yeah, hard things happen, here's how I typically tend to respond when they do. Those are great skill sets to have. It makes you feel more resilient, it makes you be more resilient. You talked about how two people going through the pandemic, one said, I can never get it get through it again versus the other one said, you know what? I got through it. This is how I did it. And they probably are thinking to themselves, I could probably do it better next time. It literally no, has- No, they're probably thinking it sucked. It was horrific because it was for some people horrific, but I can survive it. I can survive- As opposed to I can't. And it's just shift. It's the same exact experience. Right. It's literally just taking your lens from here and moving exactly. it over here. That changes your entire outlook on how you live your life. And your resilience going forward. Because the next pandemic, the first person will crumble before it starts. And the second person will be like, oh my God, here we go again. But they'll be more like, okay, I'm ready. That's, you know, that's the big difference. You know, it's, we, when people come, one of our, one of our, or two of our values of the company is practice calculated risk-taking um, and be, and be candid when communicating feedback. And I'll tell you how the two of them go together. We basically tell people to come in and fail. And they're like, well, what do you mean, come in and fail? I said, look, you're going to be rewarded if you fail. And they say, well, the, the, why, I'm going to lose my job. And I said, no, no, it's actually very different. If you come in and if you say, I have an idea, it's most likely going to fail, but you clearly go after the idea and you take a swing within a controlled environment and you fail and you understand why you failed. And then we have a very candid, clear, kind conversation about why you failed and what we're going to do to improve better next time. It builds this callus on you. Can you talk a little bit more to how someone can practice and become more resilient and maybe even some of like the, the, the mental processes or the journeys people go through as they get through it? Well, let's talk about vis-a-vis -vis failure, right? Because mm -hmm. that's a, you know, like, again, resilience is by going through hardship, but learning from the hardship and identifying what gets you through it and identifying the uh, resources that you used internal and external to do so. Um, so let's use failure as an example, if that's, if that's okay. Um, the interesting thing about failure is that we don't make a thousand mistakes. Mm -hmm. We make five or six, and then repeat those in endless variety. Oh. And so when you fail at something, because we all have our specific blind spots. So when you fail at something, it's an opportunity to figure out, A, your blind spots. What is it that went wrong here? And B, to figure out what can be done differently next time. Now, the mistake most people make is when they're looking, because you have to delve into the failure to learn from it. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna delve into the failure with a ton of self-criticism, 
you're not going to delve into it because it's horribly unpleasant. I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? Oh, I'm such a loser. I'm going to get fired. Why would you want to? Yep. Because it's so critical. You need to approach it like a detective. Mm. A detective approaches a crime scene, theoretically, without emotion. They're not like, oh, my God, <laughs> could you believe the blood spatter pattern on that wall? Um, I can't. You know, it's, they're just mm. noting it. You're noting it. Blood spatter on that wall. So you just note, oh, trusted the outside vendors, didn't verify, note, verify with outside vendors, even if you know them. <clears throat> or um, I'll give you an example of, of a common failure that just is, um, I'll use this word, it's delightful in certain ways, um, and that is time management. How is it? There, there, there are different kinds of people who are late a lot, but there's some people who are constantly late and constantly stressed out by it. Mm -hmm. How is it you haven't figured that out yet? Because it happens to you 10 Every times time. a week. Yep. And you're stressed out. And you're, and you're worried. And you get and you're, how have you not figured it out? You know why they haven't figured it out? There are blind spots that I haven't identified. So, for example, I would have patients 50 hmm. minutes late to my session every week. Now, you're not getting overtime. Mm -hmm. You just cut the time of the session. And I would say to them, by the second time, second time you're late, what's going on? I don't know. I leave enough time. And when you get down to the math, they left enough time because the subway takes this long. This, what they didn't count for is that it'll take them three minutes to get from their desk to the elevator. They might wait a minute or two at the elevator. The subway, yes, does leave them off at the corner, but then you have almost a block to walk. All those little things didn't add up. Mm -hmm. And so they're not looking at those things. They're just looking at the larger items and then they're missing the smaller ones, number one, or a very common blind spot with people who are late is that they're not really willing to be early because that seems like a waste of time. And you can't be a punctual person. You can only be early most of the time if you're punctual. And then when things go wrong, you're on time. That's what punctual means. So unless you organize your thinking so that I'm going to get there early and here's how I'm going to use the time so it's not wasted, I can do these emails on my phone, I can do this thing, I can call my parent who I haven't spoken to. Like unless you're planning what to do because you're going to be early, unless something went wrong, in which case, thank goodness you'll be on time. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thinking that if you don't have it, you're just going to repeat the mistake over and over and over again. But if you can figure that out once, you can prevent so many mistakes going forward. You told an incredibly powerful story about how your brother was diagnosed with cancer uh, and you actually emotionally were more devastated than he was about the entire thing. And it's actually, it's almost unbelievable about what he went through and how he's able to get through it. Can you talk about how emotional health played a role in his win? So he, this is my identical twin brother. He was diagnosed with um, lymphoma. It's something I talk about in that, in that TED talk about emotional first aid. And um, he was told that he doesn't have long, you know, it'll be five or 10 years, but he doesn't have that long. So he, as he describes it, he spent a couple of months feeling very, very afraid and he was cold all the time. And then he realized, um, I, however long I have, I don't want to spend it like this. Mm -hmm. So he decided to, A, he had young, young, young kids. And he decided he doesn't want to impose on them that darkness either. So he decided, I'm just going to assume the following. Um, science is happening all the time. There are a lot of treatments and trials. Maybe right now that's the outlook. If I can keep myself in the best possible physical and mental shape, 
possibly, then I'll be giving my body every fuel it can use. Yeah. Will that be enough? I don't know. But I'll give it the most I can give it, and then I'll hope for the best. And then I'll also hope that with my optimistic attitude, that if I can then last longer, there'll be more medications coming down the pike. And then they'll know more about how to use them and in what protocols. And so they're constantly going to get more sophisticated. So I'll constantly, I just need to outlive till the next thing comes down. I just need to, you know, have the science run on this track and me run kind of with it. And so he started, he was the couch potato. He was a, you know, he had a dad bod. Mm -hmm. um, and he decided he was going to go from couch to marathon. Hmm. And he decided, well, if I'm going to do a marathon, I might as well do the original Greek marathon, which is brutal. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of uphill um, on, that, on that marathon. And again, you're going from couch to marathon. This was, you know. Uh, While you have cancer. Oh, yeah, with tumors in his body. Because the, the doctor said, like, um, he switched oncologist. The new oncologist said, look, we do a wait and watch approach with this. It's not, none of the tumors are impinging on vital organs. So we'll monitor. But because when we start, when we treat, you know, however it goes, the second round of treatment is less effective. We want to delay that first round because that's the most effective. We want to delay it as long as possible, as long as you're not symptomatic and you're not having, you know, tumors grow. They had all these, you know, criteria. Um, so because he has, still has the tumors, they waxed and waned. I would see him and he would have a lump here and then he'd have a lump there and then it would go away and come back. And that was how it was for a bunch of years. So he trains for the marathon. He runs the marathon. Then he runs another marathon. And all the time he's also like being, you know, like, decides I need to do something important with my life. So he discovers purpose. Hmm. He starts a company uh, because he has a good friend who's a quadriplegic. And he knows that most people with disabilities are vastly underemployed the world over, unfairly so, and that they're, you know, they're, 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 they're suffering a lot for it. So he starts a company to hire people solely with disabilities and get them back to full productivity because he spent, then spends years developing a managerial model that will work with them. Um, flash forward to today, that's 20 years later, his company has been visited by people from many, many countries. He has his own TED talk about aspects of what he does. He has his own book out from last year called Winning with Underdogs about how the people that are overlooked are the people that can be a backbone of a company. Um, and, and so he found purpose and that's super useful emotionally and psychologically. So he decided I'll do my bit. I will make my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health as best as I can do. And that should give my body the, the chance. And now we're 20 years later. And he had treatment 10 years ago. He's still in remission. So, you know, he's doing really, really well. And his company is, is an amazing thing. And, and his work is amazing. It's, it's, it's so mission-driven. He's helped so many, many, many people. Um, and again, it's just by having this, again, going through a very difficult beginning, but then deciding, how can I fight? What's the best I can do? If I'll do that, I'm going to assume it's going to be enough. I don't know so, but that's my hope. And that's all I can do. As I was reflect, I was listening to your brother's story, <laughs> holding myself back not to cry because it reminds me of the, the journey my father went through, uh, which is he should have died 25 years before he did, but because he was so determined and he had the right mindset and he found a different kind of purpose that was very different than the initial purpose he had, it sustained him and people are just so shocked that he kept on going, but it, 
it shouldn't be restrained just to sickness, right? A real thing that I consistently see is that when people go through hardships that test them and force them to question who they are as an individual, and they find self-belief, and then they decide they want something different, that very often is all you need in order to actually find happiness in life. Um, and while your brother may have not sought out happiness from this, he basically shifted his perspective once again and said, I'm not gonna let this thing beat me, and I'm especially not in front of my kids. Yeah, he, he was in an unfortunate situation of being very happy before this happened, and then having that dip, and then bouncing back to that level of happiness, because he's, he's a very optimistic person in general, and, but, but purpose purpose is when you ask about like what can people do that will help their life purpose mm -hmm. if you can and by the way the the ideal combination is combining purpose with work that you're good at that's when you're really in the sweet spot but purpose doesn't mean stop what you're doing dedicate your life to some kind of cause it means it can be the purpose can be i want to raise the best kids mm -hmm. that i possibly can the happiest kids or the most resilient kids so i want to be the best sibling that I can be or the best community leader or it, it can be something small specific but it's something that's a guiding light for you that's meaningful by definition if you don't feel the meaning of it if you're not really believing in it it's not sufficient purpose it's got to be something that's important to you that you believe in that matters that if you can make a dent if you can make these incremental things happen then that will feel extraordinarily satisfying purpose is one of the best things people can and need to discover. I feel like I am fighting myself from diving down this so hard because I would argue that all my happiness and success has come from once I have identified my purpose, but I feel like we need to have a second conversation so you can help people understand what, not only why it's so important, but how to go chase after it. So Dr. Guy Wench, I, you are unbelievably amazing. I think that this conversation is going to help so many people. We feel grateful to have you here and uh, we'll make sure that everyone gets, uh, gets more information in the show notes about where they can find you. Great. Great. Hey, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat not, intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional. And it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.